Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why isn't everything as good as Finland? I really like Finland because all the food is lactose intolerant. You can just get anything in the hotel bars. It's like yogurt is good. There's a lactose intolerant version. I don't know. Sorry, that's just random aside. Maybe let's just skip all that. But let's go right into what we're going to talk about first. We have an amazing guest on today. I want to make sure you know who the other host is, though. I'm Richard Littauer, of course. Hello, everyone. And we also have Justin Dorfman, longtime sustainer on the call. Justin, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. And our guest today is Jan Einali. Jan, it is really good to have you on here. Very excited. Jan has apparently listened to the podcast before, which always kind of weirds me out when people do that. But that's very cool. Jan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. Nice to have you on. So Jan is calling today from Amsterdam, where he is officially a code base steward. What does that mean? Well, he's a code base steward at the Foundation for Public Code, where they develop tools, processes, and collecting best practices for community building. Before joining the Foundation for Public Code, he was a policy advisor on digital issues for a green Swedish member of the European Parliament, mainly working on the copyright directive. And earlier, he ran a consultancy called Open by Default, helping public organizations to use open licenses to publish open data and make open source software. Initially, he was swept into the open movement through Wikipedia editing, which is the best, leading him to co-found the Swedish Wikimedia chapter, becoming a chairman and later the CEO. That is really cool. Please stop the banners to asking me to donate, please. I donate, just I don't want to see the rest for a chance. They're soon coming up again. Oh, no. We're oh, heading no. into that time of year. Well, that's okay. Things have to be funded and things have to be sustainable. And that's just how Wikipedia runs. So let's start with where you are now. What is the Foundation for Public Code besides the short few sentences I just took from the bio? Yes. So the Foundation for Public Code is a nonprofit whose purpose is to help public organizations collaborate when they develop open source software with the public purpose. And that's not collaboration between public organizations is not a usual thing for public organizations. So that's sort of why we exist. So when you say public organizations, what sort of organizations are you talking about? So we're talking about mostly municipalities because they're so plentiful, but also could be federal agencies or state level agencies, depending on the nationality, but we also provinces, counties, what have you. Tell me a bit about how many different constituents the Foundation for Public Code currently has. How many member organizations? Ooh, so we only have one member as of now. It's only the province of South Holland. And it turned out that getting public organizations to become member, which was our original idea, is quite hard, especially when we're seated in the Netherlands, but aim to work globally. So it would have been easier if we were focusing on just one, that would be more obvious. But since we have this broad scope, because we really think that if you collaborate with everyone, that's better than to collaborate with just a few. So we're sort of like, yeah, so we're sort of trying to, well, is there some other way that we can become sustainable in this? But we haven't really figured out a new plan yet. So we're still in this trying to become member owned and driven organization. So tell me a bit about how that works. If you only have one member at the moment, and sorry to stick on that point, I'm just kind of curious about it. How are you making sure that you're not over optimizing for that member, like what other members are coming up and might join soon, or who are you trying to get on to also work with the foundation? No worries for sticking to it, because we're trying to set up a governance or have been trying to set up a governance of the organization where in the General Assembly, 
members collectively figure out where's the focus going to be for the next year. And if we're only having one members, it could turn out that, oh, we should do all the work for them. Luckily, our first member is also someone with a lot of insight. Probably that's because that's why they joined us. So they're giving us quite a good of room to experiment and see, can we prove our value globally as well? Really focus on the international collaboration. Okay, so they've joined you. Now I'm curious, what does that actually entail? Do they have to take on the open source software that you develop? Do you suggest software to develop or is it methods for working? What do so you do? I, yeah, so it's rather the opposite. So someone who becomes member with us is already someone who is developing some open source software themselves. So they're already engaged and committed and they also realized we need to collaborate with more people to become successful, but they don't really know how to do it. And it's not a requirement that you become a member with us for us to help a code base community, but it's a way to have a say in the governance in the long term. So you said you're working with a province, right? Yes. The equivalent of a state. Yes. How big is the province that you're working with? My Dutch geography is not great, but I would say it's Probably two, three million people or something like that. How many people are you working with in the government? What's the team size that are sort of working directly with you? Yes. So that varies quite a lot. We work with a couple of code bases, so not only with the code bases of our member. And the team sizes are usually not that big, even though governments and public bodies in total have a large budget. They rarely have a large budget for developing software. So the team in provinces of South Holland, I think they're about 10 people. So not a huge team, but still enough to have a few different competences on it. Awesome. Okay. So you work with multiple teams, whoever needs it, you're there to help them figure out the governance, help them figure out how to do open source code and how to collaborate effectively. That is really cool. It's really harder to do at the city level. It's really hard to do at the state level or the province level or the federal level. I've seen this before because I've been involved with Osmo++, which is a similar type of thing, where it's like, how do we get open source program offices working together in NGOs and government cities and the like? And so I'm really curious, given the other players in this space, I mean, you may know about Osmo++, you may know about, I think there's an open source observatory that also does some interesting stuff. There's Osmo Eurozone or whatever it was called that came out of Eclipse. I'm just curious, what sets apart the foundation of public code from these other sort of trans-provincial, trans-governmental organizations that are doing the work of intersource commons, but with politics? I think there's a couple of things. One of the things is that we really limit ourselves in our scope. We only work with code bases with a public purpose where someone tries to implement a policy into code. That's sort of where we want to work. So that's where we are a little bit narrower than some others. And then we're really trying to be practical, working with the different teams of devs from public organizations to make their work as smooth as possible. How can they share code with each other? And what should someone expect to have to do to get their contributions into the code base? Can you give an example of what, like, what sort of policies that have gone into code that you've worked on? Yes. So one code base that we're working with at Province of South Holland is having a new law coming into effect, 
like for the environment and in general, what policies province has, that has to be publicly accessible. So they're setting up a code base to show that. And they're also going a bit further than not only relying on the law from the state, but also towards their own civil servants so that they can go in and look here. Someone is making an application for a permit for a building. What policies are already affecting this area? So they can point a map and get all the policies for that. So that kind of software. You know, it seems like you're really good at diplomacy. And I saw in your bio, I mean, was that learned at the Swedish Wikimedia chapter? I mean, you were the chairman and then CEO. I think it's probably based from the Wikimedia movement, yes. Not perhaps specifically from the organizational work, but just being a Wikipedia editor where you have to listen and argue with people all the time about different points of view to try to get to a consensus of something that will become stable. So trying to listen, what is the good arguments from all the sides? And after you do that for a while, that could really, I guess, turn into a scale. Yeah, I remember, I forgot who it was, but I remember them saying something along the lines of, if you want to see what the real article actually means, go to talk and read the back and forth. That's where you'll get the most context of the subject of the page. Yeah, that's really true. So I didn't realize that Wikimedia slash Wikipedia, they have like chapters. How big was this chapter and how many other chapters are there in the world? Yeah, when we started, of course, we were unusual in that we already, I think we had 70 members on our starting inauguration. Usually there's just a small group of people, but in Sweden, people were really hyped about this for some reason. So we had a large first meeting. But then for a couple of years, we were just volunteers working on this and also got inspiration, mostly from the Wikimedia chapter in Germany. We should professionalize and ask for funding for different places. So we hired our first employee and got some more funding. And when I left, I think we had nine employees And today, I think they're 10 or 11 in Sweden. That's really interesting. Yeah. And for your second question there, I think there are around 40, 45 chapters around the world right now. Is Wikipedia or Wikimedia on board with this? Okay. So it's closely affiliated and stuff like that. Got it. We call it affiliates even. Love it. Is that per language or is it per region, right? So do you focus on the articles that are in English in that region or say all the Swedish articles? Yes. Excellent question as well. So the chapters, they are country-based, whereas the Wikipedias are language-based, which makes it sometimes somewhat tricky to see like who's doing work where. What do you feel about Sverker Johansson? Oh, yes. He's done a lot of work. Sverker is, is a Swedish man who's did over 3 million Wikipedia articles. He uses a bot that automatically makes a ton of different things. He's also just a prolific editor of Wikipedia. He also writes really amazing books on the evolution of language. If you wanted to check those out, he's an expert on like Neanderthal bone structure and the like, if I recall correctly, having met him once. So yeah, it's just, I'm always kind of curious. How does he have time to meet anyone when he's writing 3 million pages? I mean, that's... Most of the articles are written by what we call a bot. So he writes a little software based that on different databases, throw in a few words. Of course, he's working with language, so it's really good at that kind of thing. So he can construct basic sentences out of that. And so the articles are not fantastic, 
but there are plentiful. Okay. So it's more like the strategy is quantity over quality and then iterate from there. Yes. He's been doing work in different topic areas. So for Swedish Wikipedia, for example, he made first all the plants based on what there were good databases. And with that as a proof of concept, he went to all the other animals. And that also worked well. But then he tried to work on all the places. And it turns out the databases on that are not as good. So that turned into a little bit of a friction with the rest of the community. Got it. I love this. Like, you don't know about this unless you're like in it. That's pretty cool. What's cool is that we are sitting at Jan. You are actually very diplomatic. So you're very good at saying things without saying things. And one of the things I'm really curious about is you talk about, well, the data aren't that good for places. And for me, my first thought is, well, what's the standard on what's good or not? And of course, standards is one of the reasons you're here today. You have a standard for public code. And I'm really curious, is this coming out of the foundation for public code? And what is it and how is it going to apply? Yes, it comes from the Foundation for Public Code. It is a standard for anyone who wants to prepare their code to be collaborated on. So it's essentially what should go into the readme, what kind of governance do you set up before, what kind of documentation do you need to have, and so forth. And then all of that turns into 16 criteria that we have. This is, of course, available on the web as well as in print. And it's really made to be a thing so that if something is compliant with the standard for public code, someone who comes to that repository will see this will be about as easy as it can be to collaborate on. Oh, listeners, you couldn't see it, but Jan just showed me a really beautiful book with two people holding hands and some great font which you can probably check out. We've dropped the link in the show notes, which is really exciting. The standard is recognized as a digital public good, a DPG by the DPG Alliance, which is great. Can you tell me a bit about who wrote the standard? So the standard was written by the staff of Foundation for Public Code. And I don't know all of the history, but I think the city of Amsterdam was involved as well as the University of Amsterdam. And that's sort of why we're seated and founded in Amsterdam, even though we try to be a global organization. And then has, of course, been iterated over and over. We're right now at version 0.4.0. So we're not up to a first release at 1.0 yet. So there's still room for improvement. But even with that, we're trying to apply it to a couple of code bases to see that it actually works and makes sense in a practical context. So it doesn't become an artifact of theory, but rather something that this will work. And most of the stuff... We hope that any developer will see, oh, this is just common sense. This is what we should do. But when you work on a large project, there's always some corners you cut because of deadlines. And with all of these, no corners are cut. All your technical debt and social debt are paid. Love it. So, John, you mentioned there are 16. They're actually pretty quick to read them. So I'm just going to read them out real fast. First, code in the open. Bundle policy and source code, create reusable and portable code, welcome contributors, make contributing easy, maintain version control, require review of contributions, document the code base objectives, document the code, use plain English, use open standards, use continuous integration, publish with an open license, make the code base findable, use a coherent style, and document code base maturity. So that's really cool. How do you decide on 16? 
for instance, I'm curious why it doesn't say, you know, integrate designers or something. Yes. So we didn't decide on 16. Actually, there was 15 until version 0.4 when we added the latest one, which was make the code base findable. And perhaps there should be something on design which goes beyond good documentation about the design style guys and stuff like that, which we sort of implicitly have in there. So we're open for contributions. Make the code base findable. Isn't that one of the core principles of an open source license that it's findable? So isn't it also part of using an open license? If your OSI approved, then you have to have the code available, right? That's one of the tenets. Yes, this goes a little bit further in actually trying to also make your metadata about the sta- your code base in a good shape so that if people search for it or go to certain software catalogs that you would expect to find your code base in, it should be in there. Cool. Okay. So underneath each point, there's a bit more technicality. It's... Those are just the, the level headers, right? Yes. yes. Cool. So, so um, each of these have, I guess, about five to eight requirements each. Some must requirements, should, and optionals, like your standard requirements, languages. And in total, I guess it's a little bit more than 100 requirements in this, even though it's like divided on 16 criteria. So I have one immediate question. Obviously... You're Swedish, your surname is Finnish, you live in the Netherlands, you're working with people in the Netherlands. And then one of the things here is must be in plain English. And English is, of course, a language from another place, which is everywhere, but also kind of overrides local communities. Local community efforts often has to be in their own language in order to actually be effective. Otherwise, you have to say you're this tall to ride the ride to everyone who wants to contribute to the code base. And that takes a lot of work to learn English. So I'm curious about that one in particular. Yes, that one is a really good question, though, because it's not an obvious one. And it's one of the one that we get a lot most questions from non-English countries like, hey, we need to have our documentation in perhaps in Swedish because there might be some language laws that require that everything a public organization publishes should be in Swedish. But we also see the practicality of the lingua franca of developers being English. And since it's mostly about the code and collaboration about code, that is where we sort of like, well, if we have to make some sort of selection to try to collaborate globally, which that's sort of where the, where the choice goes. It doesn't say you can only do it in English, but it has to be at least in English. So you, of course, if you have the resources to also publish it in more languages, that's fantastic. So you keep mentioning this word globally. Obviously, you're talking to me and Justin right now. Justin's in LA. I'm in a van in New Zealand, although I don't really live in Vermont. Can you tell me more about what the global efforts are for the Foundation of Public Code? So far, we have had most traction with code bases in the Netherlands because that's where we started. And it's easy to meet up with people and explain. So we don't have any other code bases in our stewardship, but we also have a few people, contractors in the U.S., and talking with people and trying to figure out where is the space for this. And of course, with my Swedish background, I am also very active in the Swedish communities and to see what's going to happen there. And we have employees in Italy. And I think our staff is also Belgian and Dutch, of course, and American. So an international crowd. So here's a question I have for you, which is based upon my experience of working with municipalities and governments and even universities and certainly companies. When you have a network, 
it's very hard to get new people involved in the network because every single person wants to have their logo first as a founding member. So how are you making it beneficial for everyone all the way along the chain and the pipeline to join in a way that helps them out as being super awesome? How do you grow the network that way? And that's a really good point. And I think that's also where we see it doesn't come natural. And I think this is specifically on policymaker level and politician level, where if they're not the first mover, it's not as attractive. Whereas when you come to talking to developers, it's much more attractive when there's actually, oh, I don't have to do everything myself. There's already some code in place. (laughs) Yeah, I love that corollary. Or that like inverse corollary. Like it does yeah. seem to happen where developers are often like, actually, I really am glad I didn't have to do any of that work. Thank you for doing this for me. Have you gotten any pushback from developers in other places where they're like, have you tried re-engineering all of this? Not so much pushback, but it's sometimes really hard to work so that people are not forking. We want people to collaborate on the same code base. And Sometimes it might be, oh, if I just fork, I can do whatever I want and I can go off with my thing. But then, of course, you're making it harder and harder for yourself to coexist with existing code base where there's going to be continuous development. So trying to stay as closely to that is, of course, a good thing for everyone. But it's often tempting for people to, oh, we should go off and do this thing rather than have to negotiate what goes into the code base. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because like I have a friend who is new to open source and he's like, I don't want people to fork the project and go away. And I'm like, well, I mean, that could happen. But for the most part, if you look at other examples like Node.js and IOJS, they eventually came back together. Also, if you fork the code, you don't get the community or anything. You just exactly. get, yeah, you just get the git commit history. So I agree on that. Yeah. So what businesses are you working with to help push this initiative forward? That's actually an excellent question because it's often going to be a change in the way businesses work around this, but it's not for any lack of business, but it's going to be different because there are very few public organizations that have developers in-house, so they're going to need to procure that service in some sort of way, hours of developers or something like that. But it's going to be rather than they buy a license for something, they say, come work on this code base for this feature or for this time, or sometimes even like we need one person to just be a maintainer for two or three years and have that as a contracted person. We see this for a code base we work with that was originally developed by the city of Amsterdam, where other municipalities, when they want to implement it, they don't have the resources to do it themselves. So they, of course, have vendors to implement it and to maintain it and to make sure it's up and running and stuff like that. So that's sort of like generating business that wasn't there before because it's a new type of thing. And there are a few different vendors that have insight enough to see that this is the future. Many places, Netherlands and the EU included, have already some sort of like open source policies. They're not mandatory yet, but there's clearly a direction there. Got it. Makes sense. So I'm looking back over the standard and I'm really curious about it because I think some of the points that you have in it, like code in the open, are political decisions. 
not developer decisions. A lot of these are developer decisions. The things were like, someone could just say to an engineering team, go and do that. They'd be like, okay, we checked that box. Thanks. But like code in the open is like a political decision, which is really tough to do if you're an engineering team, because if you're an engineering team at a public institution, you're often driven by the needs and requirements of the people above you who have been either elected in or are long-term serving diplomats who have their own agendas and maybe don't really care about you as the same way. Not to say that those people aren't great. Just thinking about like how it actually plays down a lot of the time. And so I'm curious, how are you supposed to enforce this? What's the sign-on process for getting people to use this standard when there's that always going to be that friction between the elected officials and the engineering teams working at these institutions? Uh, that's a, such a great insight because that's actually one of the hard parts and where we see the buy-in, the commitment is very different on different levels in organizations. And of course, for something like this, you need something like a really high buy-in because in general, people are using their ticket systems to be something that's traditionally just, oh, it's only for the employees of this organization that can see it. And now we say, go make it public. And that's, of course, world of difference in the mentality in how you work. Everyone can yeah. inspect every bug and comment on it. Now, people are usually have too much fear in people go <laughs> snooping around in <laughs> repositories. That really happens. And if you get a comment, you're usually very happy, like, oh, someone cared enough to look. But yes, getting that insight that we need to start to do this in a radically different way, which is that part is radically different. Whereas other parts, as you said, is easy for developers to just check the box and start doing it. I think we will move in that direction anyway. At least that's what I see here in Europe. I don't know if it's the same trends in the U.S. I don't know either. I mean, the U.S. is pretty intense and there's a lot of differences for how things are done here. Oh, man. Yeah. Europe seems a lot more collaborative to me in general, and which is very interesting to note, whereas the U.S., everything has to be sort of built bespoke most of the time. So tell me about the accreditation process. What does it mean when someone actually works according to the standard? Do you give them a little badge that they can put on their website? Do you give the entire engineering team a badge that they can put on? Is there something that the city can boast about and have a nice podium-esque presentation or say, hey, we're now using this standard? First, you can just say that we're striving to uh, meeting all these criteria and that you should publish as soon as possible because that will sort of also set the level of expectation for any contributions going into the code base. So being clear about that is excellent. And then the day someone actually starts meeting all the criteria, we will probably most likely issue a badge that goes to the repository saying this release meets the standard for public code. And hopefully also they will mandate us from that point, review every pull request so that everything keeps staying compliant. That's a huge amount of work. Are you paid for that? By that time, we hope we will be, yes. Cool. But yes, it is a huge yeah. amount of work. <laughs> so that sounds like a lot. Okay. Well, that's cool. Are you going to set it up in a way that other people can actually self-approve their own standards or maybe approve each other's? How is it going to be community-based as opposed to just the foundation doing all this work for every single joining member? We have been thinking about if we come to the place where we need to scale in some way to not spread ourselves too thin, how should we do that? We don't have the answer yet could be something like perhaps you sort of prepare 
and then we go in and quickly rubber stamp it rather than doing a deep thing. It could also be that we have been thinking about, well, what should we be the only organization doing this? Maybe someone should be certified. We don't have any concrete plans to do that. So we'll see when we get to that part. We also talked about loosely, like perhaps we need local chapters on the ground in certain areas. We haven't gotten to that part either yet. So we're still trying to figure all the things out. We've just been around since 2019. And unfortunately, more than half of the time sitting at home due to (laughs) the pandemic. Well, it's just a lot of time at the keyboard. So it's not too bad, all things considered. So this entire conversation is reminding me of the XACD comic, not the one about the developer in Kansas slash Nebraska. I can never remember which state it is, but the other one about, hey, I need a standard. Great, now we have another standard. And there are other standards that are going on that sort of are towards this work. For instance, Stephen Wally was recently appointed as the chair of the Open Source Software Project Governance Working Group at IDE, which is another, how do we work together for open standards and governance? I'm curious if you know of other standards that are already in this space and why yours was different slash better. Yes, there are a few that are similar, but most of the other standards focus on quality rather than collaboration. And I think that's what sets it apart. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit about the scope, not it being general for every code base, but rather being for what we call public code, that is code with a public purpose. We're speaking to another question. You mentioned expectation setting earlier. Most important part of open source, in my opinion, like everything else after that. If you set the expectations really early that you don't accept PRs, makes it a whole lot easier to reject PRs, right? Just this is how it goes. Public code is different. Public code is a whole different sphere. One, the amount of people in public code is very small because it's people who are already have their businesses in order or doing this as a hobby. So maybe weirdos trying to submit stuff to City Hall. Source, I've been one of those guys before. It's very difficult to have that happen. Or it may just be hard to work with these institutions as a member of the public. And so the amount of people who contribute to open source at the public level is very different. And who contributes is different. Did you have to take into account the different user bases and expectations of how community is going to be different when it's a public code from a public foundation? Versus, say, just open source when you built these standards. And as you did so, how did you make sure those conversations took that into account? So essentially, our base assumption is that the vast majority of all contributions are going to be from someone who's in some way employed by public organizations, like a civil servant, a policymaker, someone in like a project manager or devs and designers that are either in-house or contractors. There will be a few from the civic tech, of course, some people who are really passionate and think this is important. I want to help my municipality do this thing right. But I don't think we're going to expect that to be the major part. And then there will be a few vendors who are really like, oh, we're going to invest in making this better because then we can set us apart as vendor of this thing to other municipalities with the proven expertise in that area. So that's sort of like the level that the standard goes to is we expect people to be essentially civil servant or already working with the public sector in some way. Cool. Okay. That makes a lot more sense to me. Well, this is really sweet and this is exciting. And I'm curious to see how it's going to turn out and how it's working and as you grow and move. 
What are you most looking forward to in the next few months about the standard and about the foundation in general? Well, I hope we'll see a couple of code bases actually meeting all the requirements. We have a few promising coming. We're working right now with brand new code base. It's easier if you do it right from the start and don't have a lot of legacy that you have to fix rather than going into code base that's been in production for a couple of years already and try to, after the fact, going back and see, oh, do we have all the documentation in place? And not having things remaining being like, oh, here's a whole module that's just in Dutch or something like that. So that's what I'm really looking forward to, to be able to put the first green light on something like, hey, here we have one. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that too. Do keep in touch when you get that. I'd be really curious to see how it works out. We are running up on time, which is why I asked that kind of traditional closing question. Where can people follow along and or join in? So you'll find publiccode.net will be the easiest way to find us. And then we're public code net, I guess, in most social media as well. And where can people follow you? It's easiest to find me on einali.com. And there you'll find all my other links as well. Cool. That's Einali, A-I-N-A-L-I dot com. We also have these links in the show notes, of course. Jan, this is absolutely great. Thank you so much. Having publicly funded institutions publicly publish their code is really useful and seems to me to be an obvious choice. So it's good to see standards for how to collaborate more effectively in that space. Thank you so much. Super cool. With that having been said, I think it's time to wrap up. But at the very end, we always have that extra of the show spotlight where we talk about whatever we feel like needs more love in the universe today, whether it's code, whether it's a mentor that really helped us out or whether it's a really cool dog treat in the case of, say, Eric who used to have an amazing dog on this show. With that, Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight is called Wheezy Print, and it turns simple HTML pages into gorgeous PDFs. It's open source, and it's used by the Foundation for Public Code for their book, Standard for Public Code. I think Jan can add a little more if he would like. This is actually an excellent feature where we just take our web page and run a little script and pops out thing we can send to the printer. It's fabulous. Awesome. I am going to use that. That is awesome. Thank you. My spotlight today is actually Sverker Johansson. I think Sverker is a really awesome, nice person. And he's a super amazing polymath. It's very rare to find people who just want to do what they want to do and then go out and do it and have the ability and skills to do so. Highly suggest checking out his new book, The Dawn of Language. Any books on the evolution of language are fascinating. That's where I spent a lot of my time when I was an academic working on stuff as well. So Sverker, thank you so much for being a light for the rest of us. And Jan, what is your spotlight today? I think my spotlight will be Dani Vrandicic, who was first project manager for Wikidata. And it's interesting. He's also like a polymath and in the field of language as well right now. He's working on the abstract Wikipedia, where he will combine what's in Wikidata to generate articles for Wikipedia, similarly to Sverker, but continuously updated. Cool. Jurisdiction wants to find out more, and I will probably do so by looking in the show notes where you can find all this information. Of course, you can find more information at podcast.osss.org, including our past guests and our past episodes. If you've gotten this podcast somewhere else, please like it wherever you saw it, on Apple, on Spotify, etc. If you have any comments, 
either for me or Justin, anyone else here, or for Jan, feel free to send them along. You can email podcast at the same OSS.org. You'll go to all of the hosts of this podcast. You can also go on our Twitter at the same OSS or our Mastodon, which I really need to set up because Twitter is now over, which is kind of really sad. But do feel free to send along emails. If you have any suggestions for hosts, please also send them our way. And do check out the publiccode.net slash standard dash four dash public dash code. It is an awesome book slash PDF. Jan, this was really great. Thank you so much. And best of luck. Really excited. And take care. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye, Al. Yeah.